All right. Thank you so much, David, for leading us in worship again today. Um, I always grew up hearing that worship prepares you for the word. And I think that's absolutely true, that we want to be engaged in body, mind, and spirit with God's call on our lives. And so we want our minds to be transformed by God's word, renewed. And at the same time, we need our hearts warmed by praise and worship of God. And so I, I'm so thankful that we have that opportunity to do praise and worship before we get into the word. And today, as we get into the word, we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Exodus. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 14, and we will be looking at verses 9 through 14 today. So Exodus chapter 14, verses 9 through 14. We'll begin by reading the passage as a whole. I'm going to pray over our study today that God will open up our hearts and minds to receive God's word, and then we'll get into today's study. So Exodus 14, 9 through 14, this is God's word. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihachirot before Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning because I believe we too are in a war with our backs up against a, a sea, a wall on one side, and yet uh, it seems like an army on the other, Lord. And we know that fear is a very real temptation for your people today. Lord, we pray that as we study your word, that as we believe the Holy Spirit has breathed out these very words, and that that same Spirit who authored Scripture, inspired the human authors to write, is the same Spirit who wants to speak to us today. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would speak to the church today. Lord, we pray that we would learn from this example, Lord, that we would look at Israel and that we would go right when they went right, but that when they went wrong, we would learn our lessons and that we would trust in the Lord as our Savior. Lord, I pray for a blessing now over every single person, over every man and woman, over every husband and wife, mother and father, grandparent, great-grandparent, whoever they are, Lord, I just pray you would touch them today. And it's my prayer that if there's any fear in them this morning, it would be overcome with faith. And I pray this now in Jesus' name and so that he would get the glory. Amen. All right, friends. So again, we are in an epic study of an amazing book of scripture, the book of Exodus. I feel like every week we go through, there's something that applies directly to our circumstances today. And I believe just like Israel had its back up against a wall, a sea, as a matter of fact, and on the other side, there was an army, the Egyptian army, charging at them. I feel that that's where we are today. 
We do live in unprecedented times. These are monumental times. These are pivotal times. And I believe both for bad and for good. I don't think it's all one or all the other. I believe bad things are happening and I believe good things are happening. But where are we going to set our eyes? What are we going to focus on? What are we going to believe about God in this time? What are we going to believe about ourselves? What are we going to believe about others and our mission and place in the world? I believe this is a defining moment for us as Christians and as a church. And we need to humbly seek the Lord so that we can faithfully fulfill our role in this cultural moment. You know, I think I've shared with you before that growing up, I was very close to my grandpa, Woody, Woodis Sherman Chaddock, and he was in the United States Air Corps, and he fought during World War II. He was actually a B-25 bombardier navigator, and he had all these just amazing stories that he would tell me growing up as a young boy, how he got shrapnel from a bomb embedded in him, how he uh, one time uh, all of a sudden the enemy was flying over and began dropping bombs on their position and he dove into a horse trough uh, with his friend to get away from uh, all the shrapnel that was coming at him and he just had all these great stories. And I remember studying World War II, and one of the things I remember is wishing I were there. And I know that sounds weird. Who in the world would wish they were in a war? And, and certainly now as an adult, I, I don't know that I would have wanted been. But here's, here's the attraction. It was very clear that when my grandpa was in those moments, he was living for something that was far bigger than himself. And a, and a lot of life, probably the problem with being comfortable is that your battles, even if they feel big, they're, they're generally very small. It's, I have a personal problem with this person, I have a personal problem with that. And many times in, in life, in modern American life, our problems are just individual and personal. That's not to minimize them, but I think there's something about being a part of something that is far bigger than you that is attractive to the soul because I believe we want to live for something bigger than ourselves. I believe God's put that in us to want to live for something that's bigger than ourselves. And so I, I always thought, you know, Lord, will I have such a moment? Will I have such a defining moment where there's good and there's evil and the battles that I face are not just my personal battles, but rather they are global battles. They are country, nationwide battles. And I believe we actually are in a moment like that today. So just pause for a moment and reflect on that. I'm sure most of you have personal challenges. Some of you have challenges with your health. Some of you have financial challenges. Some of you have relationship challenges, maybe in your marriage or or adult children, uh, or, or uh, extended family, or something like that. And I don't want to minimize those. But friends, you and I are in the midst of something much, much bigger. We are in the middle of a culture war. It started with the pandemic. Now, the pandemic was a big enough thing in and of itself. That's a challenge. That's an enemy right there. I'd say that's like the sea in Exodus 14. That as Israel's back was up against the sea, that's what this pandemic is. And so regardless of your perspective on current events, your, your personality, your temperament, your political affiliation, all that kind of stuff, we all have our backs up against this sea of, of the coronavirus, the pandemic, that whole thing. But then as Israel also saw an army of Egyptians charging in, that's sort of what this whole culture war thing is as well. And we saw it already beginning during the response to the pandemic itself. And this, of course, was before the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and then the eruption of social and cultural forces battling over what should be done and how it should be done and what the underlying beliefs and values are of the various groups who are speaking these things. Um, 
Lisa Lehrer, who is a uh, writer for the New York Times, wrote an article called The New Culture Wars. And I thought it was interesting. I'll just read you, read you a brief line. But she pointed out how this pandemic really kicked off what is a greater culture war. And it goes both ways. She says, wear a mask. You're a liberal snowflake controlled by big government. Want to reopen restaurants? You're a greedy conservative willing to sacrifice grandma for the economy. It took less than two months for the coronavirus pandemic to become just the latest battle in the culture wars. So friends, as we look at this passage, as we look at Exodus 14, 9 through 14, I think we are in a similar situation. We are in the middle of a battle. We are in the middle of a culture war. Backs up against the wall over here with the pandemic and then the social cultural battles going on on the other side. And I believe that easily any of us, regardless of how similar or different some of us might be, I believe that all of us are susceptible to fear. All of us, when we see these things, when we hear about them, when we see what other people are doing, it can elicit in us strong feelings of fear. And it is very normal and natural to allow those feelings and emotions of fear to take over your mind such that you begin to behave and to do things that are subservient to those fears. And friends, I believe there is a better way for you and I. Scripture gives us the way of faith. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack what's happening here in Exodus 14, 9 through 14. I'm going to share five things that we learned from Israel. So I want to start there. Kind of talk about what we observe there. I'll draw some uh, applications to our situation. And I want to conclude with how we can overcome fear with faith. So first, number one, notice this. God will allow his people to be attacked in order to fulfill his purpose. Number one, God will allow his people to be attacked in order to fulfill his purpose. Look at verse nine. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihachirot before Baal Zephon. So again, we talked about this last week, so I won't spend too much time on it, but we need to get it through our heads that God will allow us to be attacked in life whether that's personal or as a group, as Christians, as a, as a church, uh, whatever the, as a culture, whatever the case might be, God will allow us to be attacked. And he actually has a purpose for that. So one of the temptations you and I face when we are being attacked, we feel attacked, is that we tend to think, well, God's not in control. We begin to fear because we, we have it in our head. If God were in control, this would never happen. If God were in control, this person could never say this about me. This could never happen in my life. I could never feel threatened in this way. But that's not true, friends. We know over and over and over in Scripture, God allows his people to be attacked. And we are also told that God has a purpose in doing this. Specifically, last week, he said, I'm going to allow Pharaoh, I'm going to harden his heart. He's going to come charging after you with all his army in order that I might be glorified. So remember that, friends, God allows us to be attacked, and he has a purpose when he does. It is not outside of his purpose. God is not weak that he was unable to stop the particular attack from happening. Rather, God has a purpose. Now, you might think Israel was a pretty big group of people at this point. We know that they, they multiplied exceedingly great, Exodus says. As a matter of fact, it says there were 600,000 men which puts the total estimate somewhere in the 2 million people range. So you might read this and say, why is Israel worried? There, there's so many of them. But there's a few practical reasons for that. Even if there's, you know, maybe you have numbers on some people, there's other reasons to be scared. 
first of all, Israel was not trained in warfare. Israel was not trained in warfare. During their time in Egypt, they were building, they were, for what we know, they were building the great cities of Egypt. Some people suggest they were even responsible for building some of the pyramids. That's a suggestion that has been put forward. But either way, what they were doing was simply building things. They did not take time all day long to study the art of warfare. So they were untrained. They were unskilled. They were, and again, when you're when you're not able to do something, you've never done it before, and you go up against somebody who's done it their whole life, it's natural to have fear. Secondly, not only were they untrained, but of course they, they had women and children and older people, so it's not like, oh, this was just two million person fighting force. There were a lot of people who weren't going to be able to fight. The other thing is that they probably were not well armed. They may have had uh, some kinds of tools and things they could use uh, to defend themselves, but certainly not ideal and certainly not for everyone. Conversely, on the other side, what we see is Pharaoh is sending out his chariots. Now remember, in ancient warfare, a chariot historians say, was equivalent to a tank. So think of a tank today. Some uh, infantry force, let's say they might be superior in numbers, but all of a sudden you see, you know, 600 tanks coming at you or something, and that's a whole nother ball game. So Pharaoh has trained military men, people set aside for the art of war, probably with extensive experience in how to kill people. And then they actually are going out in chariots, which was like the ancient equivalent of tanks. And so we can see why, with Israel's back up against the wall of the sea and Pharaoh's forces charging in, why they would feel the way that they did. But friends, God has a purpose. If he's allowing us to be tacked personally, if he's allowing us to, to Christians or, or, or us as a group feel attacked, God has a purpose. He's still in control and he's going to bring glory and honor to himself. We need to know this from this story. Number two, look at verse 10a. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. I want you to notice something. This is very important. What Israel saw determined how they felt. What Israel saw determined how they felt. Notice there seems to be no mediation between what their eyes received and what they viewed and their response to it. It says, when they lifted up their eyes, behold, the Egyptians march after them, so they were very afraid. Friends, I think we're often very much like ancient Israel. We allow what we see to determine how we feel. Some of you probably know this. You know that's exactly true, and it's an issue that, that you have to face every day. Some of you, it's probably still true, but you don't recognize it. But I would encourage you, when the next time you turn on the news, some of you watch it more than others, I want you to consciously pay attention to how you begin feeling. So let's say you're just trying to be a responsible citizen. I just want to know what the governor's update is today. I just want to know uh, what's going on in the political world. I just want to know if there's any social unrest somewhere, and if so, where it is, and, and what's going on. Okay? So that's perfectly legitimate. But pay attention to how you feel. When you're watching it, do you immediately go into a cycle of fear? And if so, that is something that you need to watch over. Because one of the things that we do, like Israel, is we do not face what we see through the lens of faith, but rather we allow what we see to cause fear, and then fear takes over. This is what is happening with Israel. So we need to pay attention that our, our emotions are, are very powerful. Even those that fancy ourselves to be sort of intellectual, cerebral people, yet we have emotions as well. 
And our reason can go right out the window when our emotions, when our fear, when our fight or flight mechanisms are activated. Now, again, we're not saying all fear is wrong. The Bible's not saying all fear is wrong. As a matter of fact, the Bible says God made us. And God made us with a fight or flight response. There is a healthy sense of fear. If you're in the street and you see a car going 60 miles an hour in a residential neighborhood, you're probably going to be afraid and you should be. And then you respond to it. You immediately get out of the way. But other times we get these prolonged senses of fear that are not fully rational. We simply feel the emotion, but the situation is not as simple as a car driving down the street. It's actually complicated. And there's a lot of layers to it. There's a lot of different levels. And there's perhaps a lot of research involved. I need to dig through this. I need to read some books on this. I need to check multiple websites and news sources. And I got to work my way through this. And I got to make sure, is this is this just kind of a, a caricature of, of this person or what's going on? So we have to be careful that when we get into these sort of long-term fear, flight and fight and flight responses, that we don't allow it to take over our minds. Because again, emotions are very powerful. I've shared with you before that the reformer Martin Luther had a great little saying. He said, feelings come and feelings go, but feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. So Luther noted that we have emotions, but he also noted that they come and go. They're all over the place. Sometimes they're for us. Our emotions march right alongside truth, and that's great, and that's wonderful. Sometimes our emotions can march right alongside falsehood. It's possible to feel very strongly about something that is not true or that is not accurate. So we have to be very careful that we understand emotions are powerful, to some extent, they're automatic, responding to what we can see. But as people of faith, I would think it's just reasoning, rational human beings. This is my prayer for everybody in our culture, that we be reasonable, rational human beings that can actually discuss with one another. We can converse. If we have two opposite opinions on something, that rather than shouting and screaming and name-calling, we can have conversations where the goal is not just winning, but understanding. That's one of the things I hope for our culture. But even more so for you and I as Christians, it is not merely reason alone, but faith. Our faith, our trust in God and in God's word should meet our feelings head on. And we should therefore be questioning our feelings. Our feelings are not to be obeyed like a tyrant or a dictator, but rather we are to question them and say, excuse me, anger, should you be such? Excuse me, O oh fear, should you have control of me in this moment? We need to learn to question our emotions. We see that the scriptures invite us to do this in the Psalms. We'll see that the psalmist will often say, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. We'll notice that David, the psalmist, is having this internal argument. He's doing the very thing I'm suggesting you and I do today that we question our feelings, that we have these internal dialogues within ourselves. Don't just believe your emotions like they are the perfect and absolute and definitive test for all truth. Friends, I can assure you they are not. Feelings can come and go. Sometimes, yes, they are right. Sometimes they are terribly wrong. We can feel guilty for things we shouldn't feel guilty about. We can feel no guilt for things we should feel guilt about. We, should, we can feel angry when we shouldn't be angry. We can have no anger and we're perfectly calm when we should be angry. Friends, we've got to allow the Word of God to question our emotions. We don't want to be like Israel, who simply allowed what they saw to determine how they feel. Number three, not all cries for help proceed from faith. Not all cries for help proceed from faith. Uh, look at the end 
of verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11. It says, So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now pause right there. Now that sounds good. It almost sounds like Israel did the right thing. And sometimes as Christians, if it looks like we did the right thing on the surface, we assume everything is also fine underneath. If I go to church, my heart must have been right. If I say a prayer to God, my prayer must have been sincere. If I read my Bible today, it is because I trust God's word. But friends, that is not always true. Sometimes what we see on the surface, even if it's a good action, does not mean it corresponds to the internal world of our motivations. We actually know that the cry of help to the Lord in the end of verse 10 it does not proceed from faith. How do I know that? Because of what they do immediately after. So after this cry of faith, or excuse me, this cry of help, verse 11 says, Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt so with us to bring us up out of Egypt? So in other words, we know this was not a sincere cry for help to the Lord because immediately they turn and begin attacking Moses. If they were truly trusting in the Lord, if that cry of help had been of genuine faith, they would not have attacked God's leader for them. They would not have done it. Let's look at what they're saying too, because again, it's, it's, kinda, it's pretty nasty. It's very sarcastic. They said, because there were no graves at all, there's a double negative, because there were no graves at all in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Now, again, this is, of course, extremely sarcastic for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, we know that there was tons of available land for graves in Egypt. Probably three quarters of the land of Egypt was available for them to build graves in. So they know that there was, it wasn't a lack of graves in Egypt. There was an abundance. Secondly, we know from history that Egypt was actually, Egyptian culture was actually preoccupied with graves. They were preoccupied with death and, and the afterlife, and hence they would build uh, the giant pyramids, which were tombs and mummification and, and everything that was involved, all the elaborate rites and ceremonies and rituals surrounding graves. So again, this is very ironic. If there was a place to die uh, and be buried, it would have been in Egypt, plenty of places, and they were obsessed with it by all accounts. So they say, why have you dealt so with us to bring us out of Egypt? Notice that. They're, so they're blaming Moses. This isn't genuine inquiry. Hey, uh, what should we do now? We, we believe the Lord, but, but Moses, was this your plan? What should we do? None at all. It's immediately moves to blame. Verse 12, it says, Is this not the word we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Now, this is kind of interesting because there is no record of the Israelites saying what they say here. So there's two possibilities. When they say, is this not the word we told you to, to let us stay in Egypt? There's two possibilities. Uh, number one is they did say it before, but it's not recorded in Scripture. That is a possibility. Uh, scripture doesn't record everything. And another way history is told, uh, probably uh, to be sort of succinct, is sometimes uh, a detail will be omitted in one place, but recounted in another. That way it's not having to say it twice. So if an event happens here, but it's going to be spoken of here, rather than recording it both here and here sometimes, it'll just do it there. That is a possibility. But there's another possibility. It's possible they never said it. They are only saying they said it. And again, when fear takes hold of people, it affects their memory. It actually affects their recollection of the past. Many people will speak of the good old days. They'll, they'll be in bad times in the present and they'll say, oh, if it were just like the good old days. 
But sometimes, if you actually go back and look, the good old days are the combination of a bad memory and an active imagination. The good old days are not always good. In the case of Israel, there was nothing good going on before. They were slaves in Egypt. They were so miserable, they were crying out to the Lord. Lord, get me out of this. Lord, get me out of this. Lord, get me out of this. And the Lord's getting them out of it. And they said, I wish you never would have got us out of it. I, know, I, I told you not to get me out of this. So we have to be careful that like Israel, when we're in a bad situation, we can sort of recall the good old days as though there were nothing bad about it. It's something that human beings do, and it's very possible that Israel is doing it once again here. So remember, not all cries for help proceed from faith. And that is significant because sometimes we'll say, hey, aren't we praying? Aren't, aren't we gathering together as a church and, and praying in our prayer meetings and praying online together? Aren't we doing it? But again, does it proceed from faith? That is a genuine question. Are you and I just going through the motions? Oh, I just attend church, that's it. But there's no faith involved. I'm not trusting God. Oh yeah, we met for prayer and we said prayers, but we don't believe. We don't believe God's going to do anything. And is, is that where we are? Because friends, we have to make sure that like Israel, these are not empty cries that our prayers and our cries for help proceed from a place of genuine faith and trust in the Lord. Number four, we often blame others when we don't understand what God is doing. We often blame others when we don't understand God, what God is doing. So again, just looking over verses 11 and 12 again. After this cry uh, of help to the Lord, then the Israelites said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you brought us here? Why have you done this? Notice, who is the one that brought Israel out of Egypt? It was the Lord. The Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Was Moses involved? Absolutely. The Lord used Moses, but wasn't it abundantly clear that it was the Lord, it was Yahweh, it was the God of Israel that sent the ten plagues on Egypt? Wasn't that the Lord? That was clear that was not Moses. We even saw how even though the Lord used Moses symbolically uh, to perhaps wave his hand, to strike something with his staff, and, and then God would perform a miracle, but we saw in the tenth plague, Moses is not involved at all. He's just hiding under the blood of the lamb like everybody else. And it is God himself who moves over the land of Egypt and striking down the firstborn because, because Egypt struck down God's firstborn, which was the Israelites. So it was actually the Lord. But notice, because we can't see God with our eyes, we tend to grumble and gripe against some visible representation of leadership. Because we don't see the Lord, when God doesn't do what we want, we automatically look for a human target for our fears. Obviously, in a church context, that, that can be a pastor or, or ministry leader, but it can be in your home. It could be a, a husband or, or a wife. Uh, children can, can blame parents. I saw this even with our own children bringing them up when we had to move and we had no choice. You know, either, oh, well we, well, we don't have any money, so we have to move to a cheaper place. I have no choice. And they're, they're mad. Oh, but I don't want to leave my friends. And I, I don't want you to either, but I have no choice. But because they, they don't get it, it's not my fault. It's just, it's easy for a kid to take it out on you. Or I remember one time we finally got to a place we really felt was like home. We were about to renew our lease and the pipes underneath the house burst. And there was black mold growing everywhere and we had no choice. And again, the kids were upset. And, uh, and I understand why teenagers get upset. They were upset that they had to move yet again. But it's like, I didn't do it. God sovereignly, I mean, it's the pipes, it's the pipes fault, but God sovereignly allowed this to happen. But I understand we tend, when we don't understand what God is doing, when we don't, under, when we don't understand and trust his providence, 
how he allows things to happen, inconveniences, even trials and tribulations, and that he uses them, and that that doesn't mean necessarily someone has done something wrong. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. He told us that. It's not the fault of a human leader, a pastor, a husband or wife or anyone else, that bad things happen in life. They happen. They're going to happen. So we have to be careful. One of the things fear does when we give into fear is we begin blaming those God has put in our lives. This is not Moses' fault. God is sovereignly, we know, it's even said, God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he comes out one final time. It is God who is doing it. And yet Israel is mad at Moses. And so I just want to encourage any of you who, who might be acting out of fear, and maybe you're lashing out at someone today. Maybe you're lashing out at a, a husband or wife. Maybe it's an employer. Maybe it's the government or, or whoever it is. I just, as a Christian, I want to urge you to temper those fears with faith and ask whether that blame you are assigning somewhere is actually warranted by what you know of God and God's word. Is it actually warranted? I also want to encourage you, if you're on the flip side, maybe you are one of the people that's being blamed. Maybe you're, you're a husband or wife and your spouse is blaming you for something. Oh, well, if you would have just done this years ago, if you would have just changed careers, we wouldn't be dealing with this. If we would have moved to this state when I told you and, and before we got stuck here in California where everything is getting so difficult and expenses are through the roof. Be careful. If you are receiving that, understand before you turn and respond in anger or resentment or whatever, understand this is normal human behavior. Even God's people, Israel, did this from time to time. What you need to do is be like Moses, who does not allow the fears of those around you to determine and overcome your faith, but rather your faith as a leader needs to overcome fear with faith. And so lastly, this gets us to number five. Salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. Look at verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. So right here we are given one of the essential doctrines of the Bible. One of the essential doctrines of the whole Bible. If you're new to the Bible, if you're not a Christian today, you're not familiar, again, uh, there's there's a lot of things the Bible says. It doesn't mean everything is, is a major doctrine or an essential doctrine. This is an essential or major doctrine. It is foundational in the Old Testament. It's being established here in the story of the Exodus. And it is absolutely critical for Christian theology in the New Testament. And that is this. Salvation comes from the Lord. Over and over and over, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible teaches and assumes and implies that salvation comes from the Lord alone. Salvation does not come from man. It is not merited by man. It is not due to our goodness. It is not due to our power. It is solely due to the grace, love, mercy, and power of God through which God's people are saved. So we need to know that, friends, because we, like Israel, can be looking everywhere else. We look at the news and we see the Egyptians coming. We look at the news and we see our backs are up against the sea. We look and we see Moses failing yet again in our estimation, and so we take everything out on him. But friends, let me say to you today, what has been always true for God's people at all times, all places, 
Salvation comes from the Lord. And that means for you and I today, what we are going through, whether these are personal problems that perhaps for you are so intense that for you, all the other stuff going on in the world is not the biggest issue. You've got some very, very intense personal things. I want to assure you today, salvation comes from the Lord. For some of you, maybe it's not so much personal matters, but it's it's the world affairs. It's the culture wars that I talked about. It's, it's the left and the right, the political divide, the social unrest in the streets. It's, it's the coronavirus and the, and the governmental response or over-response to that that's just got you so full of fear. And we're looking for salvation. We're looking for a political person or, or a pastor or, or a book or an article to come out that'll solve all of our problems. And I see people doing this. I see Christians doing this. Oh, if you just believe this one person, believe this one angle, watch this one YouTube video and all your props, salvation will come from viewing this YouTube video. Friends, that is false. As much as those things might contain some truth, I guarantee you, that this is the greatest truth, that salvation comes from the Lord. Now, that is vital to our understanding of the Bible because it is Jesus and Jesus alone who accomplishes our salvation. What's kind of fun in the Hebrew here, when it says the word salvation, the Hebrew word is Yeshuat, Yeshuat, and some of you might that might sound familiar. It is where they get the name Yeshua, which is actually Jesus' name in Hebrew. Truly, salvation comes from the Lord. Jesus is our salvation. For us today, those of us who live on this side of the new covenant, this side of the greater exodus, Jesus, the prophet greater than Moses, the true and better Passover lamb who died on the cross to defeat the forces of sin and darkness. And it is through believing in him, setting our eyes on him, we look to him. Israel lifted their eyes up and saw Egypt. God's people are called to lift up their eyes and see Jesus. Because we believe that he is our salvation. That is the one to whom we look at today. Jesus is the object of faith. It is not a husband or a wife. It is not a bank account. It is not an insurance policy. It is not a, a IRA or a 401k. It is not, it's not this party or that party. It is Jesus. Jesus is our salvation. Salvation comes from him. And he is who you and I are to look to today. But as I said, friends, we can know this essential truth, that salvation comes from the Lord. And yet perhaps this morning, we find ourselves, we know this truth in our minds, but in our hearts, our faith has been overcome by fear. How do we reverse that? How do we move from being overcome by fear to overcoming fear by faith? And I think if you look at verses 13 through 14, we get three steps, three steps to overcoming fear with faith. And I use the acronym TOW. T-O-W, TOW, which stands for Trust, Obey, Watch. Trust, Obey, Watch. So first of all, step one, trust. Notice what Moses says. He said to the people, verse 13, do not be afraid. Friends, we have a decision to make. Now, it may be true that when we see something, our fight or flight mechanism kicks in. And we didn't have an immediate decision we could make over that. It just happened. I turned on the news. I saw that the governor is, is changing. He's going to shut things down or, or uh, oh, so-and-so won political office over here. And immediately your, your, your heart rate goes up and, and you start feeling fear and you start getting angry. I understand that might be automatic. But this is where faith comes in. We now make a decision. And here's essentially what we say to ourselves. Is this situation 
sovereign over all? Or is God sovereign over this situation? That's fundamentally a decision we have to make. Is this situation I just saw or I just heard sovereign over my life? Or is God sovereign over this situation? That is the decision Israel should have made here. It is the decision Moses made. Rather than look at the Egyptians, the current events, the, the sea that your back is up against the wall, the culture wars, rather than look to those and obey whatever automatic feeling comes in response, rather we question, is the civil unrest greater than God? Is the civil unrest, has it dethroned Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Does, it, does this pandemic and the coronavirus, is that sovereign over all of my life? Do I believe that? Do you believe that today? I believe there's a good chance some of us actually do. We believe in, in, unless somebody does something different, unless somebody says something on a YouTube video, unless somebody wins this political office, unless this, unless that, we, we believe that is sovereign over all of our lives. Friends, if we've done that, we've made a fundamental mistake. We must trust in the Lord. We say, Lord, I believe you are sovereign over everything that's going on. I believe you are sovereign over the coronavirus pandemic. I believe you're sovereign over a governmental response to the virus. I believe you are sovereign over the social unrest that is going on. I believe you're sovereign over the political divide that's going on. I believe you're sovereign over the polarization and even the fact that many human beings are unable to have reasonable conversations about matters of difference. I believe the Lord is sovereign over all of that. And just like he was sovereign, even when Israel, excuse me, Egypt was charging in on Israel with their back against the sea, I believe we have a decision to make. The Lord is able to use all of this to glorify himself, to increase faith in his people, and to cause us to grow and be God's witnesses in the world. So number one, step one, to overcoming fear with faith is trust. We have a decision to make. You do not need to obey your emotions. You do not need to obey everything that is said on the news, wherever you find it from. We obey the Lord. We trust in Him. There's a, a famous statement in church history in Latin. It was first spoke by Augustine back in the 5th century AD, and it was later famously repeated by Anselm of Canterbury in the 12th century. And it was credo ut intellegum. Credo ut intellegum, and it is, I believe in order to understand. I like that. I believe in order to understand. In other words, trust, trust in the Lord has to become fundamental for us. Because if you don't begin with trust first, you may never understand. See, many of us, I think we do things the other way around. I want to understand everything before I will believe. I want to understand of how God will provide for me and my family today. And until I understand that, I will not trust the Lord. I need to understand how society is going to work out all its problems and there won't be any more violence in the streets and, and all the people groups will get along. I need to understand how that's all going to happen or I'm not going to trust God. Do you see that, friends? Again, we're not throwing reason out the window. We, Of course we're going to reason. We want to think. But for believers, for Christians, faith should be the fundamental predisposition of our hearts. I trust God. Not because I understand everything, but because God is trustworthy. It's not because I understand everything. It is because God is trustworthy. Friends, that is why you should trust the Lord today. Because he is trustworthy. He is faithful. He comes through time and time and time again the way we would do it. 
Probably not. Many times it's the opposite of the way I would do things, but nevertheless, the Lord is faithful. So we trust in the Lord because he is trustworthy, and we allow trust to shape and determine our response to our fears, our feelings of fear, and the things that we see. Number two, obey. Notice what Moses says. Do not be afraid, so trust Stand still. Now, God doesn't always say stand still. Next week, we'll see that he tells Israel to move forward. So I don't want you to get the idea that God is always telling his people, don't do anything. You know, don't don't talk with anyone. Don't read a book. Don't watch the news. Don't have a serious sit down argument with somebody about their their views on on the world and what's going on or, or don't voters. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, obey whatever God tells you to do. First of all, I think this standstill is important. Because it's the moment in which we acknowledge that salvation is not going to come from us. It comes from the Lord. And remember, that is a fundamental, essential truth of Scripture. Salvation comes from the Lord. But one of the things happens when we don't trust. So if we're not trusting, that we're giving into fear. And one of the things that happens when we're in fear is we disobey. Ask yourself this from your own experience. When you are giving into fear, are you more likely to obey the Lord or disobey the Lord? I know for many of us, when we are in fear, we disobey the Lord. If God has told us to do something, we rationalize and tell ourselves, well, I'm going to disobey God in this area. Because I'm scared that, that if I obey, I, I won't have this, or the, this person will do this, or whatever. Again, this is very, very normal when it comes to finances. You know, people know God wants his people to give. But they're scared. Well, gosh, if I give to the Lord, then I won't have enough for me. That's a totally normal human fear. But again, the problem is what we're doing is we're giving into fear. And we're allowing fear to be the reason through which we disobey God. That can apply anywhere. It can apply to how you treat somebody. You can say, hey, I know this person was right on this position, but I disagree with them on a bunch of other things. And so I cannot admit they were right here because I'm scared they'll misuse this. This is part of what happens in politics. The parties get together and they they agree on something, but because they don't agree on everything, they refuse to agree on anything. So they actually agree maybe on, hey, we should change this. We should change this. We both agree. We don't think it's good. But we don't agree exactly on why we disagree, and we don't agree on how exactly we should go about it. Therefore, we cannot sign anything which looks like we're cooperating because we don't want to give you that kind of power. This is what is happening in politics. But for believers who've taken step one, we trust the Lord. We do not obey fear. The second thing we do, and we can know we're trusting God, we obey. Uh, Pastor John Corson had a great statement. My wife and I, when we were dating, we used to go to John Corson's, I think it was Tuesday night, uh, uh, messages at Calvary Costa Mesa, and he had a really great line that has stuck with me all these years. He said, do what you know, and then you'll know what to do. So the question is, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Do what you know, and then you'll know what to do. I think this is what obey is. Some of you might object, and when, when I say obey, you're like, okay, obey the Bible. I should do this, do this. But that has nothing to do with the current events, Pastor Mike. It's got nothing to do with it. Friends, do what you know, and then you'll know what to do. Do you see obedience on the surface? Some people, when they, they obey God in a certain area of their life, and they can't make any connection to, to current events or whatever, what they don't understand is obedience is a moral act. And a moral act changes who you are as a person. Your morality actually changes how you think. I mean, you probably all know this. The more you give in to a certain sin, the more you begin to change your mind about things. You actually think differently. It is not merely, oh, I read some books, got some ideas, 
And then I started doing this. Many times in life, it actually works the opposite way. We begin living a certain way, a certain way morally or immorally, and that actually changes how we think. It changes how we process the world. If I'm in gross sin in an area, my mind has to account for that. I have to deal with that. I have to justify in my mind, why am I doing this wrong thing? And I have to tell myself, probably, if I'm going to keep doing it, that it's not wrong. Or if it's wrong, somebody else really deserves me doing it wrong because they did something wrong. That's the thing you start to do in your mind. And then your mind gets poisoned by immorality and actually changes how you think. So friends, even though you may not see how obeying what God has told you and I to do in the Bible has anything to do with our, our big matters of concern, I want to assure you that it does. Because obedience forms what kind of person you are. The things that you do affect what you think. And what you think as a person affects everything in life. Your character, whether you know it or not, is involved with your reasoning process. Your character is involved with how you confront events in the world. And so step one, trust. Step two, obey. Do what God has said, friends, and you will be on the path to knowing what to do. And lastly, in our acronym TOE, trust, obey. Step three is watch. Notice what Moses says. Verse 13, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Notice, so Israel is to trust in the Lord. Moses is trusting in the Lord. He's not giving into the sea of doubt. He's trusting in the Lord. He's obeying the Lord. And now he says, watch. We are to trust, we are to obey, and watch. Watch for God. Be expectant. As Christians, we profess, if you believe the Bible, we profess God is in control of history. We actually believe that history is not some endless cycle that just goes around and around and around and around, never going anywhere. We believe the Bible. We believe the Bible is a story. We believe there is a beginning and a middle and an end. There is a plot. There is creation, fall, redemption, consummation. History is really going somewhere. And the God who created the world is the God who is redeeming the world, is the God who is coming again to make all things new. If we believe that, and we believe Jesus is coming again, then we should be watchful. We should be watching for God to work. When you turn on the news, I know there's always bad stuff. And guess what? There's always going to be because bad news sells. That's actually an empirically proven fact, by the way. If news was all good news, people would turn it off and go to where there's bad news because bad news is actually addicting. We even know that sometimes websites and, and all, all kinds of things that, that track data will actually show you bad news or just the things you want to see. We have to be careful. Do we meet what we see watchful and expectant that God is doing something? Maybe there's a million things going wrong in the world and I see all of them on the news, but do you have a watchful eye in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the darkness, can you see the goodness of God? Can you see that God is doing something? God is saving some people. He's bringing people to Jesus that would never come to Jesus because of this. He may do some things in, in our world and nation that couldn't be done otherwise, but he's going to get it done. Are we watchful? Do we believe? Are we expectant that God can do great things? You know, I want to encourage you that even our affiliation of churches, Calvary Chapel churches, were born out of a tumultuous time. We trace our spiritual lineage to what they called the Jesus, Jesus movement in the 1960s. And if you go back and watch what was going on in the 1960s, it was a lot of chaos. You had the Vietnam War, you had riots, you had the protests, you have uh, all kinds of political turmoil, uh, and the hippie movement, the counterculture was a response to that, and that wasn't good either. But God began to save people 
out of that. Even though there was a lot of bad things going on, a revival happened right in the middle. And friends, I believe that God can and will do the same thing in our day today. If we will be faithful to trust the Lord, don't, uh, don't obey your fears. Trust the Lord that he is good, that he is sovereign, that salvation comes from the Lord. Obey the Lord. Are there any things today you're disobeying? Again, I know sometimes they seem little. And so you say, it's okay. It's just a little disobedience. I got bigger problems. Friends, I say this for your benefit. Don't disobey in even the smallest of areas because it actually changes who you are and it clouds your judgment. And I want you to be powerful men and women who are able to see and know God's work in the world and to respond to it faithfully. And that is likely not going to happen if you persist in disobedience. So if there's a big area of disobedience today, honestly, it's a big sin, and maybe you felt guilty for it, friend, now is the time. Today is the day to repent and turn from your sins. Maybe some of you, your sin is, is the biggest sin in the world. It's not the sin a lot of people would say, including Christians. It is the biggest sin in the Bible. The sin of rejecting Jesus as Lord and Savior. That is actually the greatest sin in the Bible. It's not all the other things that many people don't like because it bothers them personally. No, the greatest sin in the Bible is rejecting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if that's you today, maybe the Lord is allowing all of this in your life so that you will begin to obey the gospel, repent of, of disbelief in Jesus, begin to follow him as your Lord and Savior. And again, lastly, watch. I believe God is doing some great things, and I am seeing it. Like many of you, I'm tempted to get sucked into the negativity. Uh, I feel the fear as well. I've shared with you. I've wrestled with anxiety. I've had it physically uh, affect me, disrupt my sleep, cause my heart at, at various moments. I thank God for the most part. He's He's just been so awesome and wonderful and, and really just, you know, enabled me to get through this time strongly in the Lord. But I'm also human and I've, I've had my moments where I've, I've felt overcome with fear and anxiety. But I believe God wants to do great things. I believe we could be on the precipice of a mighty revival. Remember, the light shines brightest in the darkest hour. And I believe that as things are becoming more chaotic in our world, now it is time for God's gospel, the essential truths of the Bible, that salvation comes from the Lord, will be in our lives today. And let me lead you with verse 14. And I invite you to write this down. And I invite you to read this verse every day. Say it to yourself and believe it. This verse is for you. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Hear this. This is the word of the Lord to you. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now and we thank you and praise you that your word is living and active and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents and the motivations of our hearts. Lord, I just pray that you would reveal if, if we are giving into fear, rather than faith. Lord, that we would be released from whatever it is we are fearing and that we would trust in you as the Lord who saves, the Lord who will fight for us. Help us to believe on you today, Lord. Help us to subject our fears to faith. We pray that we would follow you, Lord. We would obey you in all things. Lord, it could be huge areas in our lives. We have, we have been rebels. We have failed to follow you. We have disobeyed. Lord, help us to repent in these great areas. For many of us, perhaps our disobedience is rather small. Perhaps it's not even something on the surface many people would know. But in our hearts, we've compromised what our first love is. We are more concerned about our lives here than 
our, the life in the world to come. We are more concerned with earth than with heaven. We are cons more concerned with things that don't last than things that will last forever. We are more concerned about us being comfortable than we are about glorifying you and doing your work in the world. Lord, whatever it is, we pray that you would correct us and that we would begin to obey. And Lord, we just pray you would grant us eyes of expectancy and hope to watch and wait the mighty works that you want to do in our generation. And Lord, I pray you would use us to be a part of what you're doing, to use us to be a blessing, to be beacons of hope, that we can be people that other people can look at and say there's reasons to believe that God saves and that he can do mighty, mighty works in the midst of these cultural battles. Lord, I pray for a blessing over your people now. I pray you pour out your Holy Spirit on them. Enable them to live for the Lord and to embrace this truth. Help them to trust, obey, and watch this week. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.